is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Bombing Syria, the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon spells it out. But can Islamic State be beaten? What do the lawyers say and is it more about politics? Britain's new model army, what the general wants, it's back to the Somme. But what's the point in all these commemorations? Is it just a nostalgia trip for people who weren't even there? The Defence Secretary Michael Fallon says it's time for Parliament to consider whether the United Kingdom should attack IS positions in Syria. He's been speaking during a foreign affairs debate in the House of Commons. This is his crucial point. We know that ISIL is organised and directed from northern Syria. That's why the Prime Minister said during the debate last September uh, on taking military action in Iraq that, and I quote, there is a strong case for us to do more in Syria. However, he, I, I will give away in a moment. However, the Prime Minister recognised then the reservations that some members of this House had, and we will not bring a motion to this House on which there is not some consensus. This is, of course, though, a new Parliament, and it is for all members to consider carefully how best to tackle ISIL, an evil caliphate that does not respect state boundaries. I will, I will give way on that point in a moment. Our position, therefore, remains. Our position... I'm, coming, I'm just finishing this particular point. Our position, therefore, remains that we would return to this House for approval before conducting airstrikes in Syria. The exception, as the House knows, is if there was a critical national, British national interest at stake or the need to act to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe. But we are also clear that any action we take must not provide any sucker to Assad or Assad's regime. The Defence Secretary Michael Fallon. Well, I'm joined by the new chairman of the Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Crispin Blunt, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon, a chemical weapons expert working for non-governmental organisations in Syria and Iraq, and, of course, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. Um, Crispin Blunt, first of all, by itself, what value would bombing Syria have? Well, Syria is being bombed at the moment by the Americans, Canadians and the Jordanians. Uh, the by Britain, Air, then? By the Royal Air Force, uh, adding Syria to Iraq in this area of operations. Frankly, I don't think it'll make very much difference. It might be militarily uh, slightly easier to coordinate uh, tasking there, but there's more than enough for the Royal Air Force to do assisting combating Daesh in uh, Iraq. Uh, so th to that extent, this is not very important. Uh, the important issue is actually getting together a political strategy that can actually lead to the defeat of Daesh and the occupation and administration of the area they currently control. This political strategy, how are you judging that at the moment? Well, it's non-existent because there isn't uh, proper coordination between the regional powers. And we've, uh, what we require is for Turkey, uh, Iran and Iraq, uh, the Saudi Arabians and probably Egypt uh, to sit down and agree a strategy uh, and then we should be able to provide the battle winning capabilities for their armies uh, then to uh, do the job of occupying that land to an agreed plan which of course will have to take into account 
the differing attitudes those regimes have towards uh, Assad in Syria and the competing parties in Syria, the differing attitudes they have towards uh, the Kurdish entity. Um, but those are second order issues and need to be dealt with whilst we get on with the first order problem, which is defeating the enemy of all of us, the whole international community, uh, which is so-called Islamic State. Hamish de Breton Gordon, bombing Syria would have little military value. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think it is a critical statement uh, of intent. Um, I've just literally got off a plane from Kuwait, and I've been uh, very impressed by the stoicism of the Kuwaitis after the uh, Daesh bomb in the Shia mosque on Friday. I think one of the critical things for me, this statement of intent, is to attack the Daesh psychological campaign, which, with my experiences in Syria recently with the Free Syrian Army, that is the thing that is creating the challenges that we have today. And if we can start to unpick and we can start to attack that psychological campaign that Daesh is so good at, I actually think the, the physical battle, which of course the air campaign is part of, would be relatively straightforward. But I think it's an intent. I think the airstrikes will be very good news for Free Syrian Army and the moderates who we again rely on to uh, fight on the ground. I also think, and I agree with uh, Lord Dannett, that we need to go a bit further. Um, and from my uh, activity, my support for the Free Syrian Army as part of the medical work I do in Syria, you know, they w would really value some more training and advisors so that they can, uh, they can attack uh, not only Islamic State, but the other terror groups, and of course, in their mind, also uh, the regime. So I think it's a good statement of intent, but I think um, it's part of a much wider campaign um, that Christopher Blunt has, has uh, alluded to. Christopher Lee, how do you go about conducting that psychological battle? I think the first thing you do is you hang on, <clears throat> as far as the British are concerned anyway, you hang on to the point that Crispin Blunt made and that uh, the RAF contribution to the airstrikes by themselves doesn't change things very much because other people are doing it anyway. The Jordanians are doing it, the French are doing it, and, and, and the Americans are doing it. What is fascinating about this is the way that it's come about, this whole psychological thing that's going on to some extent in the United Kingdom and that we have an attack, a ghastly attack in Tunisia and, and, and suddenly we've got solutions or things that are being supplied as solutions. There's quite a difference from what we've been doing uh, so far. For example, um, if you go back almost to 1972 when the then Attorney General said if we want to do hot pursuit, i.e. going over to the border into Ireland against the IRA, we must not do it. We can only go into another country if that other country actually says, will you please come in and help, or yes, we don't mind you doing it. And this whole hot pursuit thing, which is, I'm you know, exaggerating it slightly, but not much, um, is that in Iraq, when it was quite clear that IS was gaining so much control, we're doing that to some extent with the voice of the Iraqi government by itself. Syria is a totally different thing. Nobody is inviting us into Syria. You might say, well, nobody has to invite us into Syria because the Americans are already doing this sort of job. But the point being, the attorney in Whitehall still has his doubts because of the way the British operate, that there must be some uh, recognition and the legality for going in to do what we would do. If for no other reason, 
is collateral damage. Crispin Blunt, uh, supposing there were a vote, supposing it did say yes to airstrikes on Syria, can you foresee any situation that the government as it stands today would agree to doing that without a UN Security Council resolution? Would, does it have the arguments up its sleeve? Well, you would get a United Nations Security Council resolution if you could get the regional powers to agree. The Iranians are effectively backed by the Russians and to agree the Chinese. Uh, that uh, the British, French and Americans are trying to stand behind the uh, free Syrian army uh, and the Saudi Arabians in making a contribution here. Uh, you would, in effect, have all your bases covered off. You could then, if you had a proper strategy agreed, you would then have the legal cover of a United Nations Security Council resolution then to put the whole thing into place. And I think those two things should uh, sit, to, uh, sit together. We have gone wrong very badly over the last two decades when we have decided to shortcut things. And we have uh, given a credibility to the narrative of our opponents that we don't follow our own rules. This whole sense of Western exceptionalism, uh, the introduction of this doctrine of the uh, right to protect, um, which then seems as a sort of byway around uh, proper execution of international law under the United Nations. Hamish de Bretton Gordon, what effect do you think it would have if, if there were airstrikes on Syria? Because we would effectively be taking sides in Syria's civil war. Well, of course, that, that is the challenge to this that the, that the others have alluded to. Although, what I would say is that um, going back to the psychological issues, uh, and I've recently been with the Iraqi security forces when they were um, attacking Tikrit. Now, a lot of those people on the ground see Daesh as some sort of hum superhuman uh, organization. And actually, if we look at the, some of the young jihadis who leave this country today, tomorrow they're on the front line fighting. And, you know, they have virtually no sort of tactical military experience. And I think that is something that we must uh, get over in both Syria and Iraq. But coming back, back to your question, you know, what, what will the effect be? One of the challenges and the, and the various NGOs that I support in Syria, we get medical supplies in there. Um, it's very limited. And with 1,000 people still dying a day in Syria, 350,000 in all, very little food and water. Uh, the ability with the Air Force and the other coalition forces striking into Syria, we then have the chance that we can get some proper and meaningful aid into particularly northwest Syria. And with that happening, then galvanize those moderates who, who, who are opposing Islamic State and, and other terror groups uh, like al-Nusra. And of course, they're also uh, opposing Assad. And, and, most, and just, just to finish, most people on the ground that I work with, and these are doctors who are helping everybody, see Assad as, as an equal evil, if not more, to Islamic State. And those are the people that we need to psychologically get on side and support so that they do defeat Islamic State um, in Syria to allow for some sort of future that has been articulated by, by the uh, Defence Minister and by um, Crispin Blunt. Christopher Lee. I think there's, an, <clears throat> there's another aspect of this which is, is almost on the sidelines at the moment and it's going to, be get, it's going to get bigger. Um, in the early hours of yesterday morning, the Egyptians took on what we think was a, quite a large IS force. It took it on at ground station because it was trying to recover a police station that had been taken over. It also had close air support. Now, one of the aspects of this, it was in the Sinai Desert. Now, who are the neighbours in the Sinai Desert apart from Egypt? It's Israel. 
the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli uh, Prime Minister, said, this is close. Now, I think we ought to start thinking in some ways of, 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 of putting the Israeli position into what is now going on, on such a large scale, spread effectively from the Iranian border, or if you believe it, it's spread from Afghanistan right the way through to the Maghreb. Israel has a position on this, and it's something which people aren't considering how the Chris, Israelis might act. Chris Bimbland, have you, have you considered this? Uh, in terms of the uh, of getting a conference of the regional powers together, uh, throwing Israel into that mix introduces a whole bunch of uh, real difficulties. In that sense, you need to have the um, Americans, in effect, acting uh, acting for them. So, what are you saying? Uh, it is not so, too... because one of the key actors uh, in addressing this is Iran. And it's the Iranians who are, in effect, supporting the Baghdad government, who are providing the military support to the Iraqi, the most effective military support to the Iraqi army uh, and the Shia militia. Now, that brings its own difficulties with the Shia militia uh, uh, then appearing to be the most effective military force on the ground resisting uh, Daesh in uh, in Iraq. And uh, it would be much better if it was the uh, Iraqi army uh, executing this. Uh, but you've got to have the Iranians and the Sauds both sitting down as responsible regional powers uh, able to have a, a, an intelligent conversation about taking on their joint foe. And at the moment, that is completely absent. And if you have these actors, Turkey, Iran and Saudi Arabia, not cooperating together, not putting together a joint strategy, then, frankly, anything we do uh, isn't going to work. There we are. <clears throat> there we are, Christian Blunt. I mean, you've got the nub of it, haven't you? What we have to do is to say to ourselves, now, how do you solve this problem as a regional issue? We can only resolve it regionally and, you know, say, well, we, we, we give, let's say, air support to what other people are doing, but within the region. But when you do that, you have to recognise, for example, as said just three weeks ago, talking to the Iranians... Uh, in, a, in a way that he hasn't been talking to the Iranians before about having a, an official sort of the, part of the Iranian army coming in on his side. That is when I would suggest that you get into a regional response and you've got Israel all the time who is likely, don't try and get them around the table necessarily, especially with Iran sitting there, but it's very, very likely if they feel threatened, they will take unilateral action, and that is another dimension which we really consider. What, I mean, what, what, you've, what you've been outlining sounds like years of diplomacy to, to the outside. I'm just wondering, Hamish to Brett and Gordon, does anybody believe that IS can really be beaten? Well, I think I go back to my first point. Um, yes, I think they can, and I think we have to focus on the psychological piece to begin with, because their their psychological campaign is the thing that that is is preventing um, various coalition forces in the region uh, doing as well as as perhaps they should do. And I think we shouldn't we shouldn't forget. I suppose um, you know a lot of people will, will think that this airstrike issue has just been prompted by the death of at least 29 British people on holiday in Tunisia and the, the 27 Kuwaitis who were killed in uh, in the Shia mosque. Uh, on Friday, and of course the attack in in France, and I think one of the the key things is is that we must get more engaged in this. Um, otherwise, that terror is going to be exported around the world, which is exactly what Daesh um, intend to do. But again, if I think if we defeat them psychologically, 
the actual physical defeat on the battlefield will be that much easier. And we must believe that we can defeat them because exactly as the Prime Minister says, this is a generational existential issue that if we don't face it head on, we, it's going to be around you know, for, for some time and we will have to accept um, the sort of terror attacks that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years on our own shores. And I'll put that question to, to, to both the re- uh, Crispin Blunt and Christopher Lee. Crispin Blunt, do, do you think IS can be defeated? No, of course they can be defeated, but they will require defeating under the rule of international law and the United Nations. Um, and all the five permanent members of the UN Security Council all have a common interest in defeating them. And it means that we have to deal sensibly with the Russians and the Chinese uh, over this and their partners in the, in, in the region, recognising that this is the first order issue. And if we can do that and then not put divisions in our way between, uh, uh, between us in uh, achieving this mission, of course it can be achieved. Christopher. I was sitting with a bunch of people who were trying to say, OK, how would you take this out? And they said, well, the first thing you do, of course, you, you, you literally uh, take out the leadership of IS. And somebody who was, uh, must have been as old as anybody in the world almost said, well, you know, I was involved in defeating Kikuyu in, 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 in Kenya in the 1950s. And so that is the size of it. But what everybody agreed was this. You can militarily take out IS. You can probably crush them. What you may not be certain of doing is being able to get rid of the issues that created it in the first place. Crispin Blunt, Hamish de Breton Gordon, Christopher Lee, thank you, Christopher, stay with us. Um, BFBS reporter James Hurst is in Westminster. Uh, James, as a parliamentary summer recess fast approaching and the opposition has yet to elect a leader, what was Michael Fallon trying to do here? He was trying, I think, to prepare the ground for the possibility of a vote on this in the future, not in the immediate future, not before the summer recess in a couple of weeks' time. I think the most important word you heard him using today was consensus. What he is trying to do to an extent is test the water, but he's also trying to get members of Parliament to think about this and to try and get them airing the arguments and, and he is hoping, I think, to build that consensus uh, as the weeks go ahead. And I think he wants to sort of have a, a sense of that in place when there is a new Labour leader elected in September. When he goes to Parliament, or when the government goes to Parliament on this, one of the things that Parliament will want to know is what does the attorney say? They're desperate to make the sure... Legality. The uh, On the legality. And that'll be the crucial thing, you know. There's the hanging over... <laughs> Of, of the legality of Iraq still in Parliament. Um, James, um, how are things different this time round, assuming we have a vote, than the votes that were on Syria and Iraq before? Well, there are certainly things that are, at the moment, seem much the same. That question of legality. Two things that I think are important in terms of difference politically. Uh, first of all, the possible evidence that IS in Syria is a direct threat to the people of Britain. Mr Fallon said in an interview yesterday, if it can be directly linked to this attack in Tunisia to IS in Syria, mm. uh, then I think that gives some political backing to this argument that it's in Britain's interest to get involved. The other thing that is different, and, and Mr Fallon may play of this, 
in the House of Commons is it is a different parliament. There are uh, MPs who've left, there are MPs who've come in. So it is slightly different political territory in the UK. I think the other thing that potentially could be seen as different is the fact that we are almost a year on from the start of coalition operations against uh, IS coalition-wise in Syria and Iraq, and there is clearer evidence that perhaps more effort is still needed. So uh, Mr Fallon is trying to bring all these things together, but I think to an extent to also test the waters of opinion. All right, James Hurst of Westminster, thank you. The head of the army wants his service to modernise. General Sir Nicholas Carter told delegates at the Royal United Services Institute's annual land warfare conference that he wants the army to be a competitive employer. He also spoke about changes to its structure. Well, Director General of RUSI is Professor Michael Clark, and he was listening to what he had to say. He's spoken to our reporter, Rosie Layden. I think this speech was a speech for a new era because what he was saying was that, right, we've come to an end of a period of continuous operations, and now we've got to restructure and rethink. The world is changing around us. We've got to take a deep breath and prepare the army for some really quite new challenges. And of course CGS has always say that. But in a sense this time he meant it because what he outlined was a much more radical review of army uh, procedures and army thinking than I've heard in the last 10 years. What he's saying is that the army um, are going to structure at a divisional level. I mean, we've only deployed generally uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq at brigade levels, but he says that when you go to war, you do it at a divisional level. That gives you uh, independence. And the division has not just got to be a division of, of soldiers. It's got to be a division of people who can organize and integrate all of the instruments of government. So he's using divisional level at a more conceptual, in a more conceptual way, and he's talking about the army um, really taking on a series of new integrated tasks which will stretch the army intellectually and in terms of equipment. And he made a lot of references to nurturing the talent the army has and and trying to encourage that talent, um, giving sabbaticals, um, encouraging training as you say, Um, and he talked about experimenting with part-time hours and less of a sort of hard divide between part-time and full-time. Do you see that as a a positive thing, and you know, a a good move towards modernisation? What he's saying about the personnel side of it is that it's a recognition that the army has to exist within a changing British society and economy. And so the army has to compete with other professions. So it's no good saying, well, you join the army because you have an inherent sense of adventure or an inherent sense of service. You do need those things. But you also have to have an inherent sense of career, that this is good for you, that this will will give you a good life, that it's well paid, that there are good ways of, uh, of adapting your army skills to civilian life. And so he's trying to fit the army into a changing civilian environment. And to do that, uh, the army will need to be more cognizant of ethnic minorities, more cognizant of the role of women in society, more cognizant of people's ability to change careers halfway through a particular um, um, job that they might have. So he's, he's making, in a sense, the army more like other, other big career choices within our society. And looking at women specifically, um, he, he says that he wants to increase the number of, of women in the army. Do you think that is an area that, that perhaps the army hasn't tapped properly before? The army, I think, has come round rather slowly to the culture change required to integrate women 
into its force structure properly. Formally, it does it. In theory, it does it. In reality, you know, we all know what the stories are, that, that women have to be you know, more blokish than the blokes to survive in the army, and that, that shouldn't be the case. In all other areas of work, people can be themselves and make the sort of contribution that they should be able to make. And the army he's talking about is now an army that will be more multi-skilled in lots of different ways, not all of which will be so physical and so combat-orientated. Um, uh, and so he's talking about making sure that women feel that they can come into the army without having to play at being male soldiers. That was Professor Michael Clark talking to BFBS reporter Rosie Layden. Now, Christopher Lee, uh, what did you make of General Carter's speech, not Michael Clark's there? Uh, always Michael Clark's speech is always interesting. One knows them off by heart. <laughs> um, uh, General Carter, he's saying things which people have been saying, well, look, we'd love to be able to do this but we can't do it, we can't make it work I mean, especially on things like the part-timers uh, they do that to some extent of getting people back into the services and if you, for example, if you, if you, if you leave the services and you've got a sort of reserve uh, period where you can record it at any time and that's a different thing but you can actually make that work. You can go out and say to people who are in the in the reserves, like the territorial, what used to be the territorial army, the Royal Naval Reserve, and etc. Et, et they're modernising them. For example, now they don't wear reserve badges on. They, they're the same as the rest of the army. You can bring people in because the army is changing itself, especially the army. You can't do it so much with the navy and the RAF because it's far too technical. But the army's got a lot of jobs which you could bring people in and say we do not need mm. potentially sort of frontline people to do these sort of, sort of jobs. Um, today's been revealed that for the first time in British history, a woman is in charge of a brigade. Brigadier Sharon Nesmith is the commander of First UK Signal Brigade. Um, there have been female brigadiers before, but this shouldn't be such a big deal, should it, in 2015? I'm really, really, really pokes me off, quite frankly. Really? The fact oh. that we get all this rubbish about the first woman's going to do that, the first woman's doing this, the first six-foot-seven woman is going to do this. <laughs> how come? I mean, why is it? I mean, don't... Well, well, How come what? How come a big deal's been made of it, or how, how come it's happening? No, why don't... Why, I mean, well, how come it hasn't it? happened before? You know, we've got, we've got the general here just saying, listen, we want to get a, a load of div a, a big diversion going on, bringing people from all sorts of places. This woman hasn't suddenly popped up. You know, the brigadier hasn't suddenly popped up and says, by the way, I'm running the signals at the moment. She's had the same sort of strict, hard, thoughtful career as any other guy that was going to be running the signals. So what is the big deal about it? Just Why can't we just let these things alone? Let's just talk briefly about this flexible working. Do you think it's, it's also absolutely necessary if you're going to recruit and retain people? It's, I'm, not sure it isn't, I'm not sure it's necessary, but the point is, if you can get not as an alternative to the gaps that we've got now or we see in the future, but if you can get some of it fixed, it is part of it. It's the same way as talking about the, the, the whole thing about a woman brigadier, that you have to sort of highlight these spots and hope to do it. You know, around the corner from here, from where we're sitting, there is a picture of a young woman. And about three weeks after it was taken, she was killed in Afghanistan. Mm. Nobody said that was the only the 27th woman to be killed on active service, and I think that's the thing to remember. Well, a public ballot is being launched online to allow 8,000 people to attend the Battle of the Somme centenary event in France in, France in a year's time. The ceremony on July the 1st next year will be one of the biggest commemorations of the First World War. Culture Secretary John Whittingdale has told BFBS how public money would be used to help children and families find out more about the battle. 
the Heritage Lottery Fund, will be making available £4 million for small grants to communities right across the country to carry out projects, to look into local connections, to find out a little bit more about the contribution that they made. And uh, I think that's a very important part of bringing alive to people how the First World War really touched in the lives of everybody right across the country. Christopher, um, the Battle of the Somme, why does it deserve its own commemoration? It was quite an important battle. I mean, you can, you can start there, if you like. 1st of July, uh, 1916, not 1915, 100,000 British soldiers of Five Army under Henry Rawlinson had been bombarding the German positions across, uh, across the Somme. And then they advanced at dawn. They thought most of the Germans were dead, but in fact the Germans had got into these deep trenches and weren't dead. And as they marched across, suddenly the Germans opened fire. And 60% of the British forces, 60% of the forces were casualties. What's important, and John Whittingdale makes the point in this, there's all this money going into the Heritage Lottery Fund so people can actually understand. I'm doing a project at the moment of getting, uh, the, you know, the village and the, and the town memorials with the names on it, mm-hmm. to get people in the villages and the small towns to actually sort of identify these people, find out about them, and do histories of them with photographs and family histories and bring it alive. Now, do, why do it? Do, do, do you ever feel that um, the number of commemorations we're having at the moment, that there is a danger that public gets commemoration fatigue? Yeah, I sometimes think to myself, you know, why are we doing it? Because the people are actually doing it. I mean, I mean, take the First World War. There's nobody left, almost, from the First World War. Why are we doing that? And then I was watching early this week... There's a guy called Johnny, uh, Charlie Flanagan, I know, who is the foreign minister and trade minister of Ireland. And Charlie went up to Belfast, and he took part in the ceremony there. And then I thought to myself, the 36th Ulster uh, Division and the 16th Irish Division were alongside each other. Commemorations allow, I think, different people in organisations to get a different perspective how other people see that one event. After all, nobody asks what the Germans think of the Somme. And that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors. Do keep your comments coming on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Join us again this time next week, but from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. News. News. Sport. Sport. And music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.